Again, Patrick and company, and thank you for singing. You guys are an encouragement to me, I think, every week. Well, welcome to uh, part two of 555 parts of Moses. Woo, okay, just five parts of Moses, and we are in uh, part two. So glad to have you here uh, with us. And if you're listening online later to this developing story, I'm really glad to have you listening to that. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting back into Moses' life. If you were with us last week, we jumped right into his story, and we left a man who was running for his life. And he had actually just murdered somebody, and so we're following a murderer on the lamb at this point. All right. Now the reason, just so you know, if you weren't here last week or didn't listen, to last week's podcast. The reason we're studying the life of Moses is because we believe that there are things that happen to us in different seasons of life that happen early in life and then into like a building years in life and then a high point and then right after success in life and then toward the end of life that we can actually learn about by looking at the life of Moses. And we think that his life actually lays out pretty easily that way. There's a lot that we can learn from a leader like this who had some great successes and also some great failures like we saw last week. So last week, we're in the very beginning stages of his life where the passions of his youth were kind of unbridled. And if again, if you heard last week, you knew that there was a growing animosity or hatred between the nation of Egypt and the nation of Israel together. And the Egyptian leader, Pharaoh, wanted to kill all the babies of the, the Hebrew people. Now, if that doesn't create anger between a people group, I don't know what will. And so in Moses' life, as he grows up, he begins to feel this divide and hatred in him as a Hebrew growing up in the Egyptian uh, world. Like He grew up under Pharaoh's uh, household, not just under his reign, but in his home as a Hebrew, and Pharaoh is the one who wanted to kill all of the baby Hebrews. So, like, there's this growing anger for Moses that he feels, and finally, one day, he goes out and sees the um, the injustice happen right in front of him, and he sees an Egyptian slave driver uh, beating a Hebrew slave, and he flips, and he kills him. And he can never get over that again. Like He can't get across that line, can't back that up, can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. You've killed the man, and now he's on the run. And this is the first time we see the fear introduced into the life of Moses. And that fear is going to follow him into our story today. And so, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, that's not a problem. There's one around you. And if there's not one around you, just steal your friend's Bible, grab their phone. I'm sure they won't mind. There's probably a Bible app on that. They would love that if you were to do that. And, uh, and roll right into Exodus. The second book in the Bible, you'll see Genesis, and then Exodus is right after that. Genesis is a long book, so it may take you a minute to, to get by that. But you'll see Exodus. Exodus chapter 3 is where we are, and we're going to be in the season of life for Moses where he's in uh, what I'm going to call the building years, right? He's, he's, not, he's no longer a 20-something, but nor is he, quite honestly, doing a whole lot yet. He's kind of, kind of in the middle, kind of hanging out, kind of building something uh, in him. And so we're going to see how that unfolds and learn, I hope, a few things about him and God today. All right, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3. I'm reading from the NIV, again, the 1984 version of the NIV, so if you're reading a more contemporary NIV, we're going to have a couple word differences, but you'll get the gist. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mount of God. Whoop, stop it there for a minute. A lot is happening that I want to set up because it's going on right away in verse 1. 
Uh, Moses tending the flock of Jethro. So uh, in the Old Testament, we don't always explain time well in the Old Testament, and we did not explain time well from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. Now here's what we know because of the New Testament, that um, Stephen, who was one of the first converts to Christianity, Some of you might know Stephen was the first one to be stoned as far as we know. Now, I don't know if you would want to be known as the first one to be stoned, but he was the first one that we know to be stoned. He was speaking before the Sanhedrin, kind of the local Supreme Court in the day, and in his defense, trying to defend Christianity, he told the story of Moses. And in there, he talked about how Moses had shepherded for 40 years. And so here's what we believe is happening now, that Moses, this, just verse 1, that actually Moses had been doing this... Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, we believe, for 40 years. Think about that for a minute. That's almost a minute. That's a long time. Like, that, that's a long time to be a shepherd, isn't it? Like, that's your identity. Do you know anyone around you who has done the same thing for 40 years? Had the same occupation for 40 years? You might. And if you do know them, that is their identity, isn't it? Like, that's wrapped up in them. You think of them and you think of what they do because they've been doing the same thing forever. This is Moses. If some of you are familiar with the story of Moses, I want to invite you today to read it with fresh eyes, to see it anew, and to read imaginatively the Scriptures. Because Moses, his life, his identity is now changed from the fleeing Egyptian slash Hebrew to a full-on Hebrew who is a shepherd and an anonymous one for 40 years doing the same thing. The reason I say that he's shed his Egyptian background is because shepherding is below any Egyptian. No Egyptian would want to shepherd. And for Moses to do this for 40 years, he has completely um, set aside his Egyptian background. He has owned who he is as a Hebrew and for 40 years getting up, up and down, up and down every day, and this is who he is. And, by the way, I don't think there's any vision of him ever doing anything different. And he ends up at the mountain of Horeb, by the way, which is code for Mount Sinai, by the way, which if you know the Bible, if you don't, I'll tell you right now, Mount Sinai is the place where Moses later in Exodus chapter 19 will be given the law of God at Mount Sinai. In fact, Moses, in this very spot where we are in chapter 3, verse 1, he will find himself back here with the nation of Israel in tow. And he will remember what happened in this chapter because he was here shepherding the flock of Jethro before. And here's what begins to happen. Verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush which you don't see every day when you're shepherding. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, here's a good thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. I don't even know if they needed to write that, because I think that's assumed, all right? Like, yeah, there's a bush on fire, there's an angel in there, and it's not burning up. What else do I have to do besides watch the sheep all day? That seems a lot more interesting. Let me go see what's going on. And this whole thing is very interesting. Why God would even choose this method of communication with Moses. Why not just say, Moses. Well, that sounded kind of cool, didn't it? Mo- anyway. but why not just do that? But he decided to do the burning bush thing, which was rather interesting. 
Now, here's the, the interesting thing, the other interesting thing. We have no record. Now, it could have happened, it could not have. We just simply don't know. We have no record of God and Moses speaking for 40 years. And so, what is the first thing that God is going to say to Moses when he finally talks to him again? And here's what he says in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now, this may seem innocuous, it may seem not all that important, but there's a little tidbit I want you to know. In the ancient Near East, when you're greeting somebody, when you're saying hello to them, when you say their name twice, it's a term of endearment. It's a, it's an, a greeting of endearment. Not a greeting of judgment. Moses. Moses. And so in, instinctively, Moses would have known that the voice calling from, to him from the bush is a voice of someone who loves him. Someone who cares about him, not someone who is judging him. Which is rather interesting because the last thing that we know that Moses did was kill the man. And now the first encounter we have here with God and Moses is an endearing, I care about you event. Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Isn't that interesting? What does that tell you? (laughs) Number one, God had to introduce himself. It was not clear to Moses who he was talking to or what was happening. Moses only hid his face after God introduced himself to him. And Moses was living in a world of great what we call religious syncretism, meaning that different religious worldviews were just mashed together into like a casserole of religion. You can take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, put it in the oven and take that out, and there you go. It's kind of syncretism, just mash it all together. But the God of the Hebrews is a jealous God who is one God to be worshipped alone. And this tells me that Moses doesn't know who this God is. He doesn't know the voice of this God, because God needs to introduce him, and only then does Moses then hide his face, because then and only then does he realize, hmm, I'm speaking to the God of my forefathers. The Lord said, verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. And so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Agricultural reference to having great, great agricultural um, future and and produce. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, and so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. (laughs) Again, if you have read this before, heard the story before, this is what you thought was coming, but stop for a minute and read it as if for the first time. How do you think Moses woke up that morning? Before the bush, after 40 years of shepherding the sheep, how would you wake up? Like a normal day, right? Like, I'm going to go shepherd the sheep. 
By the way, he's in the, the area near Mount Horeb, is actually weeks away, a weeks away walk, several weeks walk from Jethro's home. So he has the sheep, like actually, believe it or not, part way to Egypt already. Like he's weeks away from home, and he's here at the base of Mount Sinai. And God is speaking to him, but the beginning of the day, Moses wakes up like it's any other sheep day. And this is incredible than what he's asked. Moses, um, hey, please go to the most powerful nation on earth now and speak to the most powerful man on earth now and just go ahead and have the two million Israelites who've been enslaved for generations um, leave. I mean, what else were you going to do today? This is, this is mind-blowing, and I can appreciate the hesitation of Moses, can't you? If this is what you do for 40 years, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, a bush is on fire, and God asks you to do something absolutely incredible like this. It's absolutely mind-blowing, which is why Moses responds the way that he does. Verse 11 is his first kind of objection. Here's what he says in verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That's a fair question. And we have to ask this question, how should we read what Moses just said? How should I understand what Moses just said? This can be understood in one of two ways. If you know the ancient Near East culture, you know that they're a culture of, um, uh, generally, of humility and being self-effacing. In other words, this comment from Moses could be like, Oh, wow, God, I'd be glad to, but who am I to take on this role? But I'd, I'd be glad to. Like, that would be totally appropriate. That's one way to see it. Like, wow, um, who am I to do this? But sure, I'll, I'll do it. Like, that would be appropriate. And that is one way that some people read this. And initially, if you were standing there around that bush, that's how you would take it. Because he's not up and out saying, no way, I'm out of here. You've got to be kidding me. It's like, oh, who am I to take on a, a role like this? So that's one way to read it. Another one is, is does he actually mean like, uh, who am I to do this, God? Are you serious? Did you get the right Moses at Shepherd 40 years? I'm not, you know, who? how should we read this? And it becomes clear as we go on what really is happening in Moses' heart. It's the first of what will become five hesitations or, or objections that he, that he verbalizes. Look at verse 12. So this is what God said to him. All right, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. <laughs> sure, that's a great sign. I mean, so, okay. By the way, this idea of you will worship God on this mountain, the, the very language that God is using here for worship, the word for worship in Hebrew um, uh, is Chabad. Let's say that together, get our Hebrew on this morning. Ready? One, two, three. Chabad. That wasn't very loud. Ready? Chabad. Yeah, that's good. Look, we can now speak Hebrew. And by the way, that very word Chabad is also the root of the word for slave. So it's a very interesting thing that God is telling Moses and that we're seeing in the text, and that is that the worship 
of God is going to happen, and so the Israelites are to be Chabad, to be worshiping a different master, and no longer under the Chabad or slavery of Egypt. We're going to take them out of that Chabad, out of that slavery, and bring them into Chabad or worship of the right master over here. This is what is going to happen, and get them out of that and into this. So Moses said to God, wait, um, I know that that will be the sign they're going to worship God on this mountain, but, uh, verse 13, let's suppose, like he's doing hypothetical right now, Hey, God, let's just talk about this. Suppose I go to the Israelites. Let's just suppose it were to happen. And I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Good question. Well, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you, which becomes uh, the a core identity and core marking piece of who in the world God is. So when Jesus walked the planet in the New Testament, and he's engaging with the religious leaders in the New Testament, he uses language that comes back to this moment in the history of the nation of Israel, because this is a high point in the nation of Israel in, God, in terms of God explaining himself. When the Jews in the New Testament time wanted their fellow peers to understand the Old Testament. They had to take the Hebrew Old Testament and translate it into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. So they took books like Exodus and translated them from Hebrew into Greek. In the Greek, this language, this word here, I am, is translated ego emi, or I am. Jesus, when he began talking and engaging with the religious leaders, Seven different times in his ministry, he said, Ego and me, ego and me, I am the bread of life, ego and me, the resurrection and the life, I am, ego and me, the way, the truth, and the life. And every time that he did that, because no religious leader did that, because it made you way too close to God, Jesus did it, we believe, on purpose, seven different times to tell people, now and also in the New Testament, I am. Remember that? I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. Coming back to this moment here. It's not all he says. God continues in verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And so, go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I've promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt, out of the land, uh, and into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then God encourages them this way, The elders of Israel will listen to you, and then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt. And say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Pause it for a minute. Seems like a small request on the surface, and it should for us, because we're not used to this. This is an idiom or a phrase in this period of time. This three-day journey, by the way, actually means let me take a formal journey with formal consequences. In other words, it's not unlike after the service today, maybe you'll run into somebody and you need to chat with them for a minute. You might say, hey, do you have a second? you have a second? Can I grab you for a second? Well, if you say, can I grab you for a second, you will likely not, although you might, you might actually grab them for a second. But when we say to each other, do you have a second? What we typically mean is, do you have an indefinite period of time for me to talk to you, at which point I will determine when the end is and not you. 
And that doesn't sound nearly as inviting as, do you have a second? That's the same language used here. A three-day journey, the king of Egypt would realize, this is, you're not asking me for a three-day journey. You are subtly coming in. You're saying you want to take a major trip with formal consequences, and you're not telling me if or when you're ever coming back. This is not a request for just a vacation, three-day vacation. This is a big ask. This is why there's, the, the king will reject it. Verse 19, God is speaking again, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. It makes sense, because they're all enslaved and doing his bidding. Why would he? And so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them, and after that he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people. Check this out. Read this as if for the first time. So that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Not only are you going to go, but you will not leave empty-handed. Look at verse 22. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house, in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. We're using war language. You're going to plunder the Egyptians by having the ladies ask for stuff. And they're going to give them to them. It's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Like, if you read the Bible for the first time, isn't that just crazy? Like, can you imagine that? People, two million you know, Israelites just walking out of Egypt carrying their sacks of gold and silver and clothing that were just given to them because they asked nice. Maybe they said, please. I don't know. They didn't even have to say, please. They just given to me. Well, how in the world will this happen? It will happen because the Egyptians will be so weary by the time the plagues are done and so exhausted and so ready for them to get out. If it takes my gold and you take everything, just get out of here. And that's how that will happen. But this is crazy stuff. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Moses answered, what if, objection number 3, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? That is a really good question. Because, by the way, it has been, we believe, about 490 years since God has spoken to the nation. Again, read it as if for the first time. Imagine, after 490 years, Moses, last known as the murderer of the Egyptian, comes back and says, God spoke to me. You going to believe him? And then the Lord said to him, okay, what's that in your hand? And he said, a staff, he replied. And so the Lord said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it, which I can appreciate. I was uh, spraying around our house last week, a little bit of weed killer, and we have some you know, woods near the edge of our property, and spraying in there, and you know, the, the weed killer, I think, hit a snake, and it went <laughs> slithering off into the woods. And I dropped my weed killer and screamed like a schoolgirl and ran away. Uh, Just mostly kidding about that part. But the instinct is to be like, oh, I don't don't want that. Like, no, I'm going to just instinctually take a step back. And so what Moses does next is very profound, actually. Verse 4, the Lord um, said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. That's smart, right? Never grab a snake by the tail. Grab it by the tail. And so Moses, this is incredible, he actually did it. Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. That takes courage. Verse 5, this, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. 
Verse 6. And then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside the cloak and he took it out and it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. And so Moses put his hand back into his cloak and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Verse 8. So the Lord said, if they don't believe or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they don't believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Now, that should suffice, but still, Moses has an objection. He says to the Lord in verse 10, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, after what essentially amounts to the fourth excuse not to go clean his room, putting this in parenting language now, go clean your room. No, I can't right now. I, can't. I don't feel right. No, the weather's not right. The sun's in my eyes. I don't think I can. Hold on. There's something. No, not ready. I need to take a nap first. No. Stop with the excuses. Like he's a, God is about to blow, I think. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Like, I, I've had about enough. And Moses should pick up the intensity of this language now. It's different than before. I'm not giving eloquent reasons why. I'm not giving any more signs. Just go. I've told you to go. Go, 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 go. Like, Moses, enough. Go. And finally, finally, in verse 13, Moses, who himself has had almost enough, finally says what is really on his mind and what is really on his heart. Oh, Lord, please. Send someone else to do it. That makes God fiery angry. So the next verse begins that he burned with anger against Moses. And he gave him Aaron to help him, but he was angry. And so this is what I believe is happening with Moses. I don't want you to miss this. Please don't miss this part of the story. I believe that what has happened with Moses is that in the years that have transpired between him leaving Egypt and this moment right now, the fear that he left Egypt with came with him and disempowered him. It drew him way down and set in his heart unchallenged and and unquestioned for year upon year upon year upon year upon year upon year to the point where Moses, who had been in his youth passionate about something at least, had cared about injustice, had cared that things in the world were wrong. And yes, he handled it the wrong way, but he used to actually care. He used to actually think that he could be used for something, and he just did it without anyone even asking, you know, asking anybody to do it. He just did it. Now, when God comes to him and assures him over and over and over and over and over again, Moses, I am with you. I'm with you. It is going to be okay. This is going to happen. This is going to be a sign. I am telling you, Moses, go. And Moses says, please find somebody else. Here's what I think is happening. That is this, that God believed in Moses more than Moses believed in God. God believed in Moses more than Moses believed in God. 
that God had this view of Moses and he saw him, I believe, for who he was. As a man who actually was wired to do the kind of work that God was asking him to do. And by default, Moses had done that with the Egyptian. He did it wrongly, like his passions were carried out wrongly. He murdered this Egyptian, but he cared about injustice. And he cared about the cause of God. He cared about the people of Israel. And interestingly, on the heels of that event, right as he's getting into the land of Midian, there's a little story that reminds us that this is actually who Moses is. See, when he left Egypt and fled to Midian, he got to a well. When he got to that well to finally get something to drink, he ran into some ladies who were at the well trying to to gather water for their flock. And some shepherds, some local shepherds, ran them off. And Moses, who was not from around there with no real skin in the game, the text tells us in chapter 2 of Exodus, that he essentially fought off those shepherds and invited those ladies back to that well to get what they should have gotten and what they deserved. Because in his heart, there was something that was wired to care about people, to serve, to see justice done. And somewhere along the line, and here's the danger of these years, somewhere along the line in Moses, Moses' life, he stopped caring. The fear that was in there killed his passion, his conviction, his drive, his desire. I mean, think about it. He left Egypt, and for 40 years, the generation that he knew was still enslaved, were still being beaten, were dying. And he is shepherding anonymously. He doesn't care anymore. Why? Because he is allowed. The fear, the objections, the criticism, the critiques to draw him down. He's allowed his past to take over his present and impact his future. I'll put it this way for us. I don't want us. I don't want you. Don't let your past break into your present and rob you of your future. Like This is what I don't want for us. This is what I don't want for me. I don't, I don't want for people in this kind of building stage of life where in your younger years you were actually excited about something. Like you actually were driven by something. You grew up and you were hoping that man, when you get older, when you have resources, when you're able to finally serve and lead and have influence or have the ability to do whatever, like when you finally get to this point, you'll be able to do whatever. And somewhere along the line, things happen in your life. Your dad messes with you pretty bad. Your mom may be the same way. Like you are in a relationship that goes south in a hurry and all of a sudden you are questioning who in the world you are deeply. You're in a business that fails or you're in a church that blows up. It doesn't matter what it is, but there's stuff from our past that can come into our present and break in and then rob us of future. Just the way it is. That's Moses' story. That he's here in the present and he's just been gutted. His convictions are gone, and his passions are gone. God is essentially pleading with him, please, Moses, I know who you are. Like This is you. This is what you used to care about, the, the people of God and my mission and my purpose. You used to care about this. You killed a man for this. And now I'm giving you all the resources I can, and you're like, hey, do you mind God sending somebody else? And I just don't ever want for you in this middle stage of life, I don't want this middle stage of life to extend any longer than it has to for you. 
Like, I don't think God, well, I know, God wasn't satisfied to let Moses' epitaph be, he was an anonymous shepherd somewhere in the land of Midian. Because here's the thing, there are two Moseses in the story we're in now. The first is the Moses that we've covered to this point, up to chapter 4, verse 13. But there's another Moses, and there's a reason that we are still talking about Moses even today, is because of what Moses does next. He objects, he pushes back, he pushes, he pushes, he pushes, and he says, please send somebody else. God gets angry with him, gives him Aaron, and then Moses takes a couple weeks to walk back to Jethro. Imagine what would be going through your mind with a sheep for a couple weeks. And here's what he says in verse 18, if you see that in your text. Verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. There are two Moseses. One is the one who didn't give a rip. And then somewhere along the line, when he finally sees that God is serious about this, He's like, all right. All right. Okay. I'm in. I'm in again. I'm here. And I'm going to go. I'm going to go back to Jethro. I'm going to take a couple weeks. And I'm in. I'm back. Back. What, what do you need? And Jethro says, go. And here's what happens. Look at the end of the chapter in verse 29 of, Je- of Exodus 4. Moses and Aaron brought together all of the elders of the Israelites when they finally got back to, uh, to them, okay? Brought together all the elders. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses, and he also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and habad, and worshipped the right master beginning to experience the truth that they were called to be slaves of someone else, to worship something else. They began to experience what we said last week here. We, I made this point last week. It's very true for the nation of Israel right now, and that is this, that God may feel silent temporarily, but he's never silent ultimately. And now the people of Israel are beginning to experience that. Now they're feeling, after years and years and years, generation upon generation upon generation of being in slavery, people dying, whole generations dying in slavery, now they're seeing it. God is silent temporarily, but he's never silent ultimately. He's just, he's just not. And so here's the deal for you and me today. You're never going to have a burning bush experience like that, I don't think. Uh, I don't think I will to that event, but... What if this is your burning bush moment? Like God may not speak to you the same way he spoke to Moses in that clarity in the burning bush in the desert. But, but what if this is one of your moments where you might be saying, you know what? I don't know what my future will be. Like, what if God is saying to you, listen, there used to be something that you cared about with a passion and conviction. When you were younger and you were hoping to get married, you always said your marriage would be different. And it's not become different, quite frankly. It's become, like, average. Like, where is that fight and conviction to fight for that? 
Or when you were younger, you were sure that you were going to go into missions or go into ministry or turn your business into something that was highly charitable or very intentional in how you worked. Like that was your plan, that was your vision, that was your conviction. There was something in you that said, I have to do that. And now, like, is that still there? Where, where is that? And Moses' burning bush moment becomes the moment where his future is determined, spun off and around this moment, where the, the convictions and the passions that are unbridled in our times of youth get challenged later in life by quote-unquote reality, by our identity, by our struggles, by our imperfections, by our disbelief sometimes in who we are. And I don't know if this is a burning bush moment for you or not, but maybe it is. Like maybe the past has robbed you of your future by breaking into your present. And by the way, here's the difference between a past that's helpful to reflect on and a past that's not. And that is you want to invite certain things in from your past and invite people to process them. When things break in that continue to remind you of your inadequacies, that's a break-in. It's not welcome. It's not helpful or healthy for the future. And so God is saying here, listen, Moses, I have something more for you and I want you to step into this. Now, if you're in this younger stage of life right now, right, like if you're in junior high, you're in middle school, you're in high school, you're in young adult stage of life, here's what I want you to know. This might be coming for you at some point. I just want you to be aware of that, okay? Like the the convictions and passions that you might be starting to develop, the hope for the future, the ideas that you may have about the the incredible things that I think you can do that, that may change, really, the world and how we see the world. Like, I don't want you to be drawn down by the fear and anxiety and pressure that comes with some of the middling stuff of life. I want you still to see that the God who is faithful to you then can be faithful to you now, no matter what happens. And so, let me ask you this. What do you think God can use you for? What do you think God can use you for? Because I don't want to be, and I know you don't want to be, Anonymous shepherd in the land of Midian. Up and down, up and down, up and down, doing the same things without clarity of purpose and mission and intentionality. And so is there something that in your most inner being you just know when you, pardon the expression, let your hair down, when you are yourself, when you are free to be you and you know, man, I think there's something in my heart, there was a spark there. Think God can still use you for that? You think there's still hope for that future? This is the story of Moses. God breaking in and saying, Moses, come on, come on, come lead my people and serve in this way. And what Moses does is incredible. And what he does next take some of the most incredible leadership I've ever seen to overcome some of the most incredible opposition I've ever seen to deliver some incredible results for the nation of Israel. And that is going to be our story for next week. I'd love to have you back for that. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Moses, for the time to stop and see how this may have shaped up, shaken out, come together 
I pray that you will continue by your Spirit to work in each one of our hearts and minds to open up for us again the hope of a future and the, the passion and conviction of how you've made us, that we can use this energy and these desires that we have within us to serve you in tangible ways. I pray for those of us who've kind of given up uh, hope for a, a future, not just a better future for us as if somehow the great win in life is to make things better on this side of eternity. That, that's a, an endless uh, uh, goal. It's, it's a worthless goal alone. But Father, that our interests will be how in the world can you use us to serve those around us that they may come to know the God of the universe and the, the, the God of the Bible. So I, I pray that you would help us not to settle in, not to settle in, but to continue to be drawn higher, to move forward in our business, in our marriage, in our vision for our future, in our desire for how in the world you're going to use us. I pray that you would expand our horizons, help us to see and experience things that right now we don't even know what they are. I pray for our young people here this morning who have essentially a life ahead of them. I pray that you would help them dream even bigger than they can imagine right now, to have more courage than they think they can even have, to realize that you are a faithful God and that you can through you, they can do more than they can imagine on their own. That you believe in us because you have made us. And so I pray that you would give us this courage and conviction and passion of heart. That at the end of the day, our epitaph is not going to be that we are some anonymous, somebody doing something somewhere and who knows what. But that our life is used in service and glory and passion for the God of the Bible. That all people at all times would come to know him. And so I pray that you'd move us higher, that you'd continue to call us to even more and give us courage to do what we know we need to do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.